The Guardian. Hi, producer Madeline here. As most of the Science Weekly team are still enjoying the last of the summer sun, we wanted to get another episode out of the archive for you. This time, we've picked one that feels particularly pertinent. In 2017, science editor Ian Sample explored the psychology and ethics of something that's come to the fore during this pandemic behavioural science, or nudging. In the episode, Ian talks to one of the field's founders and somebody who's currently advising the UK government on nudging during this pandemic. If you want someone to live more healthily or be safer or whatever it will be, you want to be obsessive about have you made it as easy as possible. So that doesn't really sound like even persuasion, it's just, we'll just make it easy for someone to do something which they sort of wanted to do anyway. Enjoy the episode and see you again on Thursday. Chief, believe me, you're in for a treat just as soon as Jimmy gets back here. Great Caesar's ghost, what's holding him up? You know I can't work without a good breakfast. Chief, Jimmy's bringing a box of Kellogg's sugar smacks. All the more reason for hurrying. Confounder, that boy knows I like those new sugar smacks. Every day, each one of us is nudged by external factors and actors to change how we behave. Whether it's the weather forecast, an advert on the train, or advice from a friend, we're all influenced by nudges. Golly, Chief, I hadn't opened up the box yet, but I'm going to now. Well, I guess we all agree on sugar smacks. Right. But what is a nudge? What role does human psychology play? And when does a nudge become something more sinister, such as coercion or and manipulation? Andy Sweet. You bet. Just get Kellogg's Sugar Smacks, brand new. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly. And I'm tired. Well, it's him or me. And who better to discuss nudging than one of the field's leading figures? That's totally fine. Great, perfect. This is Professor Cass Sunstein from Harvard Law School. Okay, I'm Cass Sunstein. I am a university professor at at Harvard. I uh, served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and I currently serve on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. Cass is also the co-author of the 2008 book Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, wealth and happiness, which catapulted nudge theory into the public consciousness. Since then, it has become much more than a buzzword. In his new book, The Ethics of Influence, he claims we now live in the age of behavioural science. I started by asking Cass how we got here. I think we got here mostly because of work done in the 1970s and 80s that questioned the idea that human beings are fully rational and also demonstrated the particular ways we deviate from uh, complete rationality. So people tend to focus on tomorrow and not next decade. They tend to be unrealistically optimistic, at least most people do. They're not that good, that is the members of the human race at handling risk. And that work in the 70s and 80s, somewhere around, I don't know, about 2005, started to electrify policymakers because it made them think, look, we have been assuming something about human beings that isn't quite right. And we have a set of tools now that acknowledge what human beings are actually like, 
that maybe can extend lives or uh, improve health or tackle some of our most serious economic and social problems. Before we get to some of Nudge Theory's real-world applications, I first wanted to know the psychology behind its success. In his new book, Cass distinguishes between two systems of thinking. Okay, great. So uh, if you are, let's say, flying and the plane starts to shake, you might instantly think, oh my gosh, we're going down. Even though your more deliberative and reflective system, as we'll call it for an instant, thinks, you know, planes don't crash very often. If you encounter a large dog outside on, let's say, your daily jog, you might instantly think, that dog is going to bite me, better run. Whereas your more deliberative system will think, you know what, large dogs are mostly friendly. So the basic idea is that system one, as it's often called, is the system of the brain that works really quickly and intuitively. Uh, it can be fearful, it can fall in love, it can uh, smile at a baby. Uh, it's really quick and it's pretty good, but it can make systematic errors. System two is what most distinguishes the human species from uh, our, our friends elsewhere in the animal kingdom. Uh, system two, reflected in that part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, is more able to uh, run numbers. It can do calculations. It thinks about probabilities. Now, a system one nudge, let's call it, is an intervention that either benefits from or activates the more automatic system of the brain. So if you are buying cigarettes and there's a picture of someone who has lung cancer on the pack, that is targeting directly your system one. You think uh, lung cancer, death, I don't want that. And uh, if things are going well, that will deter you. Uh, system, a system two nudge would be something that would say, you know, warning, if you engage in certain activity, the probability of harm is increased by some specified percent. That is not something the automatic system likes to hear very much, but the deliberative system, the system of the brain that distinguishes the human species most from other species, system two of the brain is can handle statistical information. So you can think of system one interventions, as, as we're calling it for shorthand, as things that take advantage of people's tendency to rely on their intuitions and their automatic uh, snap judgments, and system two nudges to be those that are more focused on what kind of gets people through high school and through college. And does it make sense to try and hit those system one issues? Uh, are, they, are they more effective because they are these sort of more primitive responses and immediate responses? Uh, they can be. System one certainly thinks that system one um, responses are more effective. But system two, and I'm here to speak for system two, recognizes that sometimes if you give people information, let's say, about the health risks associated with high sugar food, that'll get, in, get into your system in general, so it'll change your eating habits. So if you think of people who make a very wise choices with respect mm -hmm. to financial investments or health issues or dealing with their kids, sometimes it's because their system one is kind of really well trained but it's often because their system too is very attentive to the information that's being provided. So I wouldn't want to generalize that either kind of one kind of intervention is better. System one interventions, system one nudges, let's call them. Uh, the, the coolest I think of the system one nudges is a default rule. that just says, here's what your cell phone's default settings are look, gonna look like. Here's what your relationship with your employer is gonna be. 
And if things are going well, the default settings in both contexts are in your interest. They are making the cell phone experience be good and making your uh, job situation be helpful to you. And, and those are system one interventions in the sense that they don't educate you. They don't tell you anything about statistics. They just say, live your life and everything's going to be fine. So those are, are really good. But sometimes it's good really to bring people up to speed, whether you're, you know, an employer or uh, a charity or a government, uh, so they can make exercise their own agency. That can be more respectful of them, and it can sometimes be in the long run the more effective thing to do. You also talk in the book about choice architecture. Can you take us through what that is? How does it affect things? Uh, choice architecture is the background environment against which we make decisions. And this is something that the great John Stuart Mill never dreamt of in his philosophy. So uh, here's the idea. If you go into a website, uh, there is an architecture there, which will often have a large impact on what you ultimately do. So the architecture might say, for example, you know, in, in large font on the website, it might say, uh, this is the product most consumers like or it might have uh, bright colors, or it might have something at the top. And we know that things that are in bright colors, that are at the top, that are said to be popular, often are like magnets to the human mind. And that's choice architecture. And what's at the top, what's in bright colors, what is described as the popular item, that's often in the hands of the person who designs the website. Now, that's just an example of a website. If you go into a cafeteria or a restaurant, there's a choice architecture there. So the cafeteria might have apples at the front and brownies at the end of the line. It might have the most expensive and let's say the most high profit uh, foods in the most conspicuous place. And that is choice architecture. Uh, choice architecture is often a massively uh, effective determinant of what people end up doing. A doctor is a choice architect. So is a lawyer. So is an engineer. So is uh, a parent is involved in choice architecture. Kids are sometimes really agile, intuitive choice architects. And I think this is the area in behavioral science that needs the most uh, focus for the next generation. That choice architecture we're often designing without being very self-conscious about its actually massive effects. Like Cass says, choice architecture exists everywhere. And it's something governments are tapping into. Got in? Yes, David. How are you doing? This is Dr. David Halpin. Hi, I'm David Halpin. I run the UK's Behavioural Insights team, and we also help other countries and public services these days as well. And I serve ministers as national advisor on what works, which is about trying to introduce more empirical and experimental methods into policy and practice um, in the UK particularly, but increasingly, again, across the world. And this week, producer Max spoke to David at the HQ of his Behavioural Insights team. He started by asking David for a brief history of what's long been known as the nudge unit. Um, it really reached back to, in the run-up to the 2010 election, when you had um, David Cameron and Steve Hilton those around them, who were looking for alternative approaches that would be fresh, um, which were less reliant on regulation that might be more effective ways in which government could have an impact in the world. And so in the coalition agreement, as it turned out, um, the commitment was made to build some kind of unit or team which would support people to make better choices for themselves. And that was how the Behavioural Insights team was born. And from this point, 
David and his team went about taking on some of the UK's biggest governmental issues. So one of the early famous ones, which has now been replicated in many countries across the world, not least we've helped other countries use them, is encouraging people to pay their tax on time. Um, the interesting background to it is that people overestimate the prevalence of bad behaviour um, in others. So they tend to think more people cheat on their taxes or take a sickie off work or whatever. So the core intervention essentially just involved people who are late paying their tax. Um, we said to them, you know, most people, 9 out of 10 people pay their tax on time. Or even better messages were, most people in your area pay their tax on time. You're one of the few yet to do so. Which, by the way, checking it empirically was true. So that kind of intervention was shown to lead to a 5 percentage point or a 15% increase in the proportion of people who then pay their tax without further prompts. And there have been many further variations on that kind of approach, including, well, why wait till people are late? Why not prompt them before and say, oh, by the way, we know you, you were late paying a tax last year, but you know, just let you know it's coming up in a couple of weeks' time, so you don't forget. Extremely cost-effective. Getting people back to work faster is a good example, where we changed essentially what had been done for 30, 40 years, which is uh, job advisors would ask you um, to show that you've been looking for work because we don't really quite trust you, because they'd ask you what you did last week. So instead we say, well, what are you going to do next week? When, how, where? In psychology, it's known as implementation intentions. You prompt people to think about what they're planning to do, and they become much more likely to do it, more effective. So that is, in fact, Start from the original trial, it's now national policy. You can go to any job centre in the UK and you're likely to be given my job plan, it's cool, but basically builds in these sort of psychological insights. So a more recent example is around skills. There's real concerns that particularly younger generations in certain populations don't have very good maths and English relative to other industrialised countries. But that's a really tough one. You can't just pass a law and say you should study maths harder. You know, you at the back of the classroom, you're not paying attention. So we did an intervention essentially around motiv using motivational texts to young people, 16 to 18-year-olds typically in further education and colleges, especially at times when they're likely to be dropping out, like after half-term, say we're really looking forward to seeing you on Monday, don't forget to plan your way in, or at points in the course where people often are struggling with it, saying you might be struggling right now, but quite often people are, give it a week or two, you'll really be through it. We found that these texts increased the attendance rates of lessons by about 20%, and really importantly, improved the pass rates for maths and English by 12%. So really quite big effects. Um, now we've done that in 10,000, um, with 10,000 young people. Of course, there are another 300 FE colleges. So it's really important if we do this stuff, we then take it to scale too. And take it to scale they did. One recent report claimed to have cut the high dropout rate on government-subsidised adult literary classes by 36%, purely through personalised texts sent to students. After this short break, we'll delve into the ethics of nudging. The basic idea is that choice architects, now that we know the term, uh, should be focused not on their own, that is the choice architect's view of what's uh, best for people, but they should be focused on people's own judgments about what's best for them. We'll also hear what David Halpern says to critics of nudge theory. So nearly all the big policy issues tend to have human behaviour at their heart. So it makes a lot of sense that we should be using you know, these approaches. And my challenge actually also to the academic and the sort of scholarly community is, well, come out of your laboratories and libraries and apply that kind of knowledge to real world problems that people want answered. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back to Science Weekly. I'm Ian Sample. Before the break, we heard from the head of the Nudge Unit, Dr David Halpin, about how the British government is using insights into behavioural psychology to tackle tax avoidance and to deter people from dropping out of class. It would be hard to argue that these things are not beneficial for society, but Nudge Theory has received its fair share of criticism. Some of which Professor Cass Sunstein hopes to address in his latest book, The Ethics of Influence. Okay, so I think the beauty of the behaviorally informed approaches that we're seeing from public-spirited private actors and governments is that they, by and large, say to people, you know, it's ultimately up to you. If you want to eat things that are full of chocolate or if you want to spend a whole lot of money this week, go for it. It's up to you. But what they will do in these things that are uh, influences is inform you or remind you of the consequences of the choice. And what that does is two things. First, it respects your individual dignity. And second, it recognizes that at least a lot of the time, the individual knows best what is in his or her self-interest, at least if the individual is using what we're calling system two, that is the deliberative or reflective system. So the influence is typically respectful of something that human beings deserve to be able to exercise, that is their own agency. Coercion can be, you know, to protect against harm to others, so not allowed to assault people or steal from them, and that's a good prohibition. Coercion can also be an effort to protect people against their own mistakes, and here behavioral science starts to be relevant. So the social security system can be understood as uh, an early acknowledgement that people are sometimes insufficiently protective of their own later selves, and that's why we have a social security system. And some things that involve protecting people against, let's say, um, reckless judgments like about buying products that they may not be able to handle and sometimes economically handle and some legal systems have a cooling off period before they can make certain purchases or do things that are potentially impulsive. Some things as like prohibitions on drug use, illegal drugs that is, and uh, requirements that you get doctor's permission to use prescription drugs, those are coercive. And the challenge I think for those who want to defend coercion outside of the case of harm to others, is that it's not really uh, the kindest thing to say to members of the human species, you can't go your own way, even if on reflection, having been informed, you want to. And also there's a risk that the coercive choice architect, let's call him or her, is, uh, is just wrong. How important is, I mean, firstly, what do you... But how important is this distinction? Producer Max asked David Halpern what he thought of Cass's coercion-persuasion divide. So Cass is a very brilliant lawyer and he tends to think about things in a legal way as well. So we probably wouldn't use exactly that language. In psychology, there's often a distinction which is quite parallel, which is between compliance and conversion. 
So if you think about it in relation to your kids or something, you can get them to comply by saying you must do this, but actually you're better off to explain to them why it's the right thing to do. So they actually decide for themselves, actually that does make sense, I would like to do that. So we tend to think about it in those sorts of ways, but also you shouldn't get trapped by that. So there are some really basic things um, which come from behavioral science, as well as you might say common sense. So if you want someone to live more healthily or be safer or whatever it will be, you want to be obsessive about have you made it as easy as possible? So that doesn't really sound like even persuasion. It's just, well, just make it easy for someone to do something which they sort of wanted to do anyway. But too often, historically, government hasn't been obsessed about that. It should have been obsessed. So we spend a lot of time, if you like, knocking the rough corners off public services so that um, citizens can kind of often do what they sort of wanted to do anyway. So you might not want to love paying your taxes, but you don't need to want to pay your neighbor's taxes. Most people do want to eat more healthily. Most people do want to save, um, etc., or achieve more in school or in the labor market. So if we can make that easier, then that takes you a long way without having to think about the language of compliance or persuasion even. And that, I mean, because that kind of leads on to the next question I wanted to ask, is that it's something that people are quite uncomfortable with, this idea of... of an external body choosing what's best for them and then using sort of behavioural insights or some sort of basic human psychology to try and uh, motivate them to, to do something. I mean, how, how, how does one go about deciding what is best for someone else? So our position on this is quite strong and straightforward, I think, which is that we do essentially what a democratically elected government asks us to do. So we serve departments, um, public services and so on. It's not really for the behavioural insight team or groups like us, in my view, to set the agenda. It's for us to try and help public servants deliver things which generally a government's been put in place to do. I think we could go further. My own view is, particularly when these things concern lifestyle choices, there's a strong case for strengthening deliberative mechanisms that governments can use to ask citizens, what do you think? So, before, for example, we start rearranging supermarkets and taking away chocolate from by checkouts, which, by the way, substantially has happened already, you might ask citizens, well, what would you want? If you're going through with your kids, um, the evidence suggests that if there's chocolate by the checkout, you eat, you know, X percent more, quite a lot more you buy. Would you rather have guilt-free aisles or would you rather not have chocolate? You know, this is the behavioral science literature. So I personally have been on record for a long time um, as a big supporter of deliberative forums, which governments can use to strengthen the ability of citizens themselves to shape the environment around them as a supplement to normal democratic mechanisms. And I think it's a good case for that. It's an idea that Cass refers to in his book in a chapter titled As Judged by Themselves. I asked him what this means. The basic idea is that choice architects, now that we know the term, uh, should be focused not on their own, that is the choice architect's view of what's uh, best for people, but they should be focused on people's own judgments about what's best for them. So the lodestar, when we're nudging people to help make their lives go better, is what actually do they envisage as an improvement in their lives. And if that thing, let's say, is more savings for retirement or uh, driving, let's say, without being on your cell phone, or if that thing is different kinds of eating and exercise habits, then go for it. But if individuals themselves think, 
you know, that thing is nudging me in a direction which on reflection I don't like very much because my life has richness in it and it's not just about, you know, maximizing thinness. That's one thing I care about. That's not the only thing I care about. Then if you're overriding people's what we're describing as rich and plural set of values, then we aren't respecting them and we're not promoting their welfare. So as judged by themselves, if there are any four words that, let's say, behaviorally informed policy should have as a kind of big, bright red banner in the office, uh, let's I'd nominate those as judged by themselves. And this is an important concern in nudge theory. We're all very different people with rich and plural sets of values. And with this in mind, how possible and plausible is it to find common goals that benefit everyone equally? In his book, a key concept Cass echoes is the preservation of freedom of choice but not everyone agrees. You've said how nudges preserve freedom of choice, but I wonder if you have people pushing back on that and saying, well, we actually think it's sort of paternalistic that you're trying to, you know, control us in some sense. What do you say to that? Yes, that is uh, heard more than once. You're not the first person. Uh, So to say that there's a paternalistic dimension to some nudging, that is fair. If you have automatic enrollment in a savings plan, that's because someone thinks it's good for people to be automatically enrolled in a savings plan. Then that has a paternalistic feature. So I guess what I'd say is that, as we've discussed, choice architecture is inevitable, that there has to be either automatic enrollment or not. You can't uh, avoid some kind of default rule. And so long as there is freedom of choice, the standard objections to paternalism are greatly weakened. At least if freedom of choice is real and it's accompanied by full transparency. So two problems with paternalism are one, that who does the paternalist think he is to uh, override the individual chooser? And two, the paternalists may not be showing respect for the individual chooser, even if the individual chooser is making a mistake. So the chooser might be wrong, the chooser might be right, and even if the chooser is wrong, the chooser might have a right to be wrong. And those seem to me very fair objections to paternalism, but they apply most forcefully in cases of coercion. If people are allowed to go their own way, then you're respecting their own judgment and you're respecting their own agency. Another way to put it is that nudges typically are a lot like a GPS. That is, they tell you the direction in which you should go if you want to end up at the destination that you prefer. And it's hard, I think, to say that a GPS device is objectionably paternalistic, even though it is, to be sure, paternalistic. It thinks it knows the right route. And nudges that are like a GPS device seem not to run afoul of the legitimate grounds on which people cry foul when they see paternalism. And a lot of people talk about it in this sort of archaic sense. And what about in the UK? How prominent are these objections here? David Halpin again. Well, I think one has to read some of this, certainly in the US context, through US political culture. 
So it makes a lot of sense and it's a strong claim to make in the US context. If you're trying to design an intervention, make it choice enhancing. Um, that really rings true in the US context. It makes it much more acceptable. Um, and certainly try not to remove choice. So a lot of regulation tends to say you can't do this or you can't, you must do that. Um, and so a lot of the, the work on nudging specifically, if not behavioral science in the US has been you know, rooted in choice and enhancing methods. So the obvious example is changing the defaults on pensions. So you could require everybody to save or something, but it turns out just changing the default so you make it easy so the default is you're in the scheme unless you opt out rather than the other way around. On both sides, the Atlantic has found that more than 90% of eligible people then stick with the default. That said, if you're applying behavioral science more generally, it's not limited only to those kinds of issues. So if you are going to introduce a law or a financial instrument or whatever it will be, you might as well think about it in terms of real human beings, how should we design this to be effective? It's a bit like if you're going to design a car, you might as well put it through a wind tunnel to make it as aerodynamic as possible. So that's not just nudging, that's actually using behavioral science to say, what is the best design for this instrument, given what we've said we're trying to achieve the following thing? And that isn't necessarily choice enhancing, but it can still be very much improving you know, the instrument. So going back to a simple example, you know, if you're going to write um, a letter, you know, you've got a speeding fine, What's the right and the wrong way? What's, can the police write it in a more effective way, which makes people not only more likely to pay the fine, but less likely to speed in future? And that sort of, the final kind of question I wanted to ask is the future of nudging, because I think Cass starts his, his book by saying, you know, we live in the age of behavioral psychology or, or the age of behavioral science, and, and one would assume that it's gonna become more and more prevalent one, do you agree that it's going to become a bigger part of our lives, the, the kind of stuff that you guys do here at the BIT? And then also, on top of that, how does one go about making sure that it's done for the, for the greatest benefit? Because I think what you've sort of been touching on is this fact that the nudge itself isn't intrinsically good or bad. It's, it's what the nudge is attempting to do. So there, I think there are two things which make me think... Um, you're going to see more of this rather than less. I mean, one is the, the, the style of methods being used. And the second is also what's the content we might reflect on. So what's the method? I mean, places like the Behavioral Insights team and similar units you see in other governments growing up nowadays has two elements. One is it introduces a more realistic model of human behavior. Um, and the second, it introduces more experimental methods. So uh, on the first, a lot of economics and actually political science and even just everyday practice is being premised on very naive models of human behavior. So it turns out when you introduce more realistic models, hey, you get policies and practices that are more effective. It's pretty difficult to see once you've figured that out, you're going to go back to kind of a really crass crude model. So there's that. Equally important is this experimental side, which certainly we've championed in the UK in the behavioral insights team, which is that Human beings are really complicated and we should have real humility when we make policy changes. We shouldn't just think, hey, we've got a great idea, let's roll it out nationally. We should experiment and we should experiment on lots of interesting variations in small scale to see what is easier or more effective for citizens. Again, that feels, I think, in retrospect, like a bit of a no-brainer that people, I think, often think my kids, our kids in the future will say, you know, well, what were you doing before, guys? Well, you, you didn't think it was a good idea to try out and test it? Um, in terms of the future on the content, 
there's a, a real sense, I think, we've moved from some quite nuts and bolts simple things like getting people to pay their tax on time or to make sure they search for work more effectively into more and more what sometimes known as the wicked issues, um, much more complex but often behaviorally based um, issues. Now, that can range from uh, lifestyle issues such as obesity or exercise, but it also gets into aspects of economic growth, like well, how can you help firms be more productive or effective managers? How can you make markets work more effectively? How can you reduce corruption? Corruption is a massive issue across the world, not just financially, but if you have to sleep with your teacher to get a good grade, that's a pretty problematic dynamic. So nearly all the big policy issues tend to have human behavior at their heart. So it makes a lot of sense that we should be using you know, these approaches. And my challenge actually also to the academic and the sort of scholarly community is, well, come out of your laboratories and libraries and apply that kind of knowledge to real world problems that people want answered. So it looks like the future is bright, or at least busy, for nudge theorists. But like everything, we must make sure that there are safeguards and regulations in place. Well, the best safeguard is democracy. Cass Sunstein again. So um, if you have, let's say, health-related nudges that get people who are at the top end of the income distribution to add on five years to their life expectancy, but we're not doing anything to people uh, elsewhere in the income distribution. That's a problem. And uh, democracy, when it's working well, is a safeguard against that problem. Special thanks this week to Cass Sunstein and David Halpin. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.